When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Wes Moss. The prevailing thought in America is that you'll never have enough money and it's almost impossible to retire early. Actually, I think the opposite is true. For more than 20 years, I've been researching, studying, and advising American families, including those who started late, on how to retire sooner and happier. So my mission with the Retire Sooner podcast is to help a million people retire earlier while enjoying the adventure along the way. I'd love for you to be one of them. Let's get started. Welcome to Retire Sooner today. We're talking about how to survive a bear market. And we're in the middle of one, and it's been a really rough 2022. And I can just tell you from conversations with families that we I work with and have worked with for many, many years, people are just nervous. Hey, what do we do? That's a question. What do we do when markets are down? Markets are down. Fed's raising rates. Fed's raising rates. Inflation is through the roof. If you look at the most recent data from the University of Michigan, consumer sentiment, they're kind of the godfather of measuring how we're feeling. How, how are you feeling, by the way, as a consumer? I bet you it's not the best you've ever felt because the University of Michigan gauge of consumer sentiment is the lowest today that it has ever been. You've got to go all the way back into the... 1970s to feel this bad collectively as a United States economy. You just look at this chart, go back to, it's been dropping really ever since the pandemic and it just has never looked back. Starting in 2020, right before the pandemic, consumer sentiment was in the hundred range, which is really, really solid, close to as good as it's been over the course of economic history, going all the way back to the 1970s. Today, that number has just fallen and fallen getting out. It's a dramatic drop after the pandemic, as you would imagine, then a big rebound. And then really so far this year in 2022, it's cratered. And now we're at a level of 50 or five zero. Just think about, we were at hundred. Now we're at 50 in consumer sentiment. If it were a stock, that stock about how we're feeling has dropped by 50%. Again, the, the June figure, the lowest on record going back to the 1970s, a number of 50 point Two, and again, the way I would look at this, it wasn't 100, now it's at 50. So it's a huge, huge drop. And, and the question mark is why? Why are you, we, collectively as a population, Americans feeling not so great about the economic future, the economy that we live in? And here's some of the quotes from this survey. So they get some quotes and they, t- they talk about the University of Michigan tries to explain why people are feeling so rough. And it comes down to inflation. So rising prices for key consumer goods, not just things that we maybe want to get, but things that we, to some extent, are very important just for us to live a normal life. So consumer goods like gasoline continue to sour the outlook for Americans. We continue. How many weeks in a row in 2022 have we had a all-time record high gas price? All-time record high gas price. And this is different in every state, but I've been to Georgia, Colorado, California this year, and it's bad, worse, and then even worse the further you get out to California. And you're talking about six and a half dollars per gallon. So no wonder Americans are feeling rough. So here's another piece of the equation. Inflation continued to be the paramount concern of consumers. 47% of consumers blamed what? Inflation. For what is it doing? Well, it's eroding our standard of living. It erodes our standard of living. When everything's getting more expensive and your wages aren't rising as fast and the stock market's going the opposite direction, then everything on a relative basis is getting more difficult to buy. From gasoline to the milk and cookie index to vehicles to housing, which is a significant, hitting a significant wall because mortgage rates have now almost doubled or more than doubled in a very short period of time that makes housing that much more expensive to go buy a new home. So we're kind of getting hit from all sides as an economy, as a population. 
And it's really non-discriminating. Who's feeling bad? Well, it's this is, again, from the University of Michigan Consumer Sentiment Report. Consumers across income, age, education, geographic region, political affiliation, stockholding, homeownership status, all, all of those categories posted big declines, big declines in consumer sentiment. So that's what's happening here in the United States. And then, of course, the stock market being in a bear market or hitting that 20% negative, and it depends on what index you look at. But I want to talk about today, how do we survive bear markets? And what is working, by the way, in 2022? There have been some real bright spots. Yes, if you look at cryptocurrency, you're going to see down 50, 60, 70, 80%, depending, some down 99%. Those are the really, really bad spots. The NASDAQ down in the 30 plus percent range. But there are areas of the market that are working. And today I want to cover one, where we stand, which is rough consumer sentiment, large losses, and we're going to start feeling a, a negative wealth effect. Then we're going to talk about how bear markets typically operate. What's the average length of a bear market and how quickly do we recover from those bear markets as far as the stock market is concerned? And then let's address the big worry that has been plaguing the markets all year. Inflation means Fed has to raise rates. Fed raises rates, slows down the economy. That is something that we can go back to 1994 and look at it the last time the Fed raised interest rates seven times in a row. What happened to markets then? We'll also dive into what's working, what's not. Value versus growth. There's this, for, for most of this year, we've talked value. We've talked growth. Well, we've explained the difference between the two, but I think it's about time we get a little bit more specific. So what are, what's in the value index? What, what companies and sectors are value? What companies and sectors are growth? We haven't popped open the hood and looked inside these indices and these ETFs so far in 2022. I think we've been taking for granted kind of this big macro picture. Well, value does well when inflation's a little high and growth does well when inflation is ultra low. And now we're headed into a higher inflationary environment. So that may lean towards value. But we've seen it already happening in 2022. And the differences between these two categories, kind of the two main categories of the stock market growth versus value or growth. Think high tech companies trying to grow and reinvest all of their profits, not worried as much about earnings, more worried about growth. Value, more established companies. These are typically our dividend payers in more stable sectors of the economy, more essentials. But what are those sectors and what are some of those companies? And I'll actually talk about a couple of ETFs that give us some real examples of, of what is working or holding up relatively well versus what is not working and down dramatically. And that is, uh, we're going to go through all of that here today on this episode of Retire Sooner. By the way, in July, we're going to start a summer series. It is getting to be summer. It's hot pretty much everywhere you go. I'm going to be trying to head north for some of that period of time to cooler weather in Michigan. As you know, I asked my guests, what's your favorite place to travel in Michigan? My wife's family is from Michigan. We've been going there for, I don't know, almost 20 years now. Let's call it 16, 17, 18 years. We've tried different spots in Michigan. It seems to me the more north you go, the closer you get to Canada, the better I like it because it just gets cooler and cooler and cooler. And living in Atlanta, like a lot of the United States, the summers are pretty brutal. It's not a dry heat. It is a 95% humidity, 90 plus percent degrees, and it's just really rough. So you're just not even, if you live in the city of Atlanta, hot Atlanta, the summers are the toughest period of time. Again, like a lot of places in the United States. So we're trying to head north for some slightly cooler weather. But the summer series for Retire Sooner Podcast, we've got some really great guests, and we'll be doing this. We'll be posting Retire Sooner Podcast at least once a week or on average about once a week. And we're going to start all of that in July, but some really fun interviews that have recently done one, Don George from National Geographic, been in the travel industry his entire life, kind of the godfather of travel. And he's talking about a life of travel, like living a life where you're always traveling, always exploring, always learning. It's kind of inspirational to hear from someone that's kind of done this for a living. Martha Beck, Oprah's a big fan of Martha Beck. She's been in her book club multiple times. 
Oprah loves her. I found uh, her latest work around living with integrity and your own truth. She has a whole different definition of integrity. It's really about your self-integrity and living your true self. And really a fascinating interview with the great Martha Beck. Another foreshadowing what we're about to launch in June. Ted Brodkin and Ashley Palathra on better social connections and social connectedness. We know happy retirees beyond the multiple bullet points on money, 500,000 plus multiple streams of income, pay off the mortgage. Okay. Let's say we have that figured out. We've got to have social connectedness as the, really the second big pillar of being a happy retiree. So that's why on the retire sooner podcast, I'm always trying to find psychologists and psychiatrists and anthropologists that have a new angle and new take on that piece of the equation, which is really hard. The, the social connectedness just gets tougher when we leave work, our kids go away, and we're, we're, people move, people pass away, people get sick, and it, it, it becomes a real challenge to keep a social fabric healthy. And we wanna to continue to talk about that, continue to remind people on how to do it, how to do it better, and you're gonna hear it right here on the Retire Sooner podcast. Now, with that, let's get to some less happy news. All right, let's look at largest wealth destruction. I love this chart. If you could see this chart, it goes back to 1970 and essentially measures how much. And again, this is think of this as paper losses. Remember, as investors, if we're not selling when markets are low, we're not necessarily, we haven't lost just yet because we may get to the rebound stage. Unfortunately, a lot of investors don't do that. But if you look at this chart, this chart is largest destruction of wealth in modern market history. Well, that's a rosy way to wake up here uh, in, in the summer. And it goes back to the 1970s and it just essentially measures total stock market and total bond market value drawdowns. And you go into 2000, you, you go around the, the technology crash and you'll see that during that period of time, Remember, the NASDAQ was down 75 plus percent during that period of time. Now, the S&P 500 at one point was down close to 50 percent, but it was also a smaller stock market, a smaller economy. This is, call it, 22 years ago. But on a nominal basis, investors, at least at the Nader, on paper, were down about $6 trillion, which is tremendous wealth destruction. And you remember, if you can remember back that, that period of time, there's all this talk around the wealth effect. So we, when markets are going up, things are doing well, we feel like we have a little bit more cushion. So we may, on the margin, make one extra purchase. The wealth effect, good for the economy. Same thing happens on the downside. When markets go down and we have a negative wealth effect, it slows consumer behavior. Hey, we got to get more cautious. Honey, our, our, our investments are down. Let's not buy that car. Let's not take that vacation. Let's not do the extra trip. Let's not make the extra purchase. So during that period of time, we had about a two-year period where there was just a lot of destruction of wealth. And it was in the $6 trillion range between the stock market and the bond market. Then you go into the financial crisis, which we all remember, which was a, an absolutely brutal period of time where housing, now this doesn't count housing, this is stocks and bonds. So if, if you looked at housing, you could maybe, this could be even a worse number, but as far as, as far as investors were concerned, down about $9 trillion during the great financial crisis, stocks and bonds. But also we have to remember that the bonds actually did pretty well. Bonds are, were lifted during that period of time. Remember rates went down, bond prices went up. So that period of time was good for stocks. So really what this is measuring is the total stock market lost $9 trillion. Well, where are we today? We are at a negative $16 trillion market loss as of a week or two ago. So negative, so during the tech crash, negative $6 trillion. During the great financial crisis, negative $9 trillion. And in this bear market, we certainly are not seeing an economy nearly as bad as those periods of time. We still have unemployment rate in the sub 4% range. So we still have strength in this economy to some extent, but the loss of, of wealth at least on paper, because we're coming from a, a higher starting point. Markets have done really well since COVID, since the rebound of COVID. But the wealth effect here, we know is already starting to kick in because we're negative $16 trillion. And by the way, that doesn't count crypto. 
Cryptocurrency down another two trillion. So if I would to add to that tally, I'd probably throw in another negative negative two trillion dollars. Remember, the crypto market was over three trillion. Call it six eight six to nine months ago. Today it's under one trillion. We've had massive. There's been massive destruction in the cryptocurrency market. Again, massive destruction in the cryptocurrency market. The other thing I think is different today in losses, at least on paper, is remember, this is the stock plus the bond market. So bonds are even down this year in 2022. So it's not as though they're counteracting stock losses all that much. So it's really the collective of this. And that means we've got a negative wealth effect. Now, that may very well play into what the Federal Reserve is trying to do. We're going to get to that in a minute, which is raising rates, cool inflation, trying to sidestep a recession all at the same time. Now, what about bear markets? Well, let's go. I don't, I, I think it is, as long as I've been in this business 20 plus years, every time a bear market comes around, I still like to remind myself of the bear market statistics, knowing how long these things typically last and then how long it takes to recover. Hey y'all, it's Mallory Boggs, the producer for the Retire Sooner podcast. From an investment standpoint, the world is changing. We've gone from no inflation to hyperinflation, zero interest rates to much higher interest rates. All of this changes the dynamics for stocks and bonds. So the question for you, are your retirement accounts ready for it? Have you adapted your investments for these major shifts? Do you know what kind of income your 401k account is gonna pay you in retirement? If not, maybe it's time for a new perspective. The Retire Sooner team is here to help. If you're ready to talk, reach out to our team and we'll help you take a closer look at how you can generate income in retirement and protect yourself from inflation. We'd love to hear from you. Again, find us at westmoss.com. That's W-E-S-M-O-S-S dot com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. And we know that recoveries can happen out of the blue. They happen very, very quickly. But let's start with the anatomy of bear markets and then really more importantly, the anatomy of recoveries from those bear markets. We went back and looked at all 12 S&P 500 bear markets, 20% or more over the last 60 years. So 61, 66, 68, all the way to 2020. And of course, not counting this one because we don't know when this particular bear market ends. And then we calculated how long it took for the market to recover or return to its previous peak. So make back the gains. Two very different pieces. How long does the bad part last? And how quickly do we get back to where we were in recovery? The average recovery time for all of these bear markets, well, let's, let's look at the average drawdown. So the average loss for all 12 bear markets, about 32%. Remember, S&P 500, as of not that many days ago, and I'm, depending on when you're listening to this, was already down in the 23 24% range. So already getting fairly close to the average bear market. Bear markets without recessions are a little bit less bad. They average down about 24 25%, and we're already pretty close to that. Bear markets with recessions, so stock market down and economy really bad, closer to 39%. Again, we may be in this stage of purgatory. We may have not so big of a recession because the economy is in really good shape. Quite, that's why we have inflation. A lot of money in the system. Housing prices strong, labor market strong. So we could get a recession, but it may look a little different than past recessions. And we'll even, we'll go back and talk about some of our past difficult periods of time and compare today with those, compared to 1999. Let's look at the, the housing crisis and, and see, is today the same? Is it worse than those other rough periods of time? Those are the drawdowns, but put them all together, call it about 32% is the average bear market loss. The average recovery time for all those bear markets is less than two years. 
1.7 years to be exact. Bear markets associated with recessions takes a little bit longer, takes about two and a half years to recover. If we don't have a recession, it's, it's even quicker than that. It's usually, it's less than a year or 0.7 years on average. But let's just look at all bear markets and see what the recovery time is for those. It's about, it's a little less than two years. But if you dive in a little bit deeper, the market data reveals just how important it is to stay invested though, even amid a bear market. The data shows that on average, a full 30% of the market's overall recovery, which again, could last months or years, happens in the first 30 days. Once the market starts to recover from its bottom, the first part of it is a really big move very, very quickly. Again, a full market recovery can take a year, two years or more in terms of time or duration to get back to your previous peak. But I think it's so critically important to understand from a recovery perspective, the anatomy of recoveries, how much of that repair occurs on a percentage basis. Again, a staggering 30% of the entire recovery on average in just the first 30 days from the market bottom. So let's compare today's problems with past bears. And this is a question I get all the time. Is this worse than the pandemic? Is this worse, the economy and the stock market? Are things going to get worse than the financial crisis? Are they going to get worse than the tech crash? Well, I think about this a lot. And again, this is really just my opinion on where we stand today. I can't help but compare the size and the scale of the problems that we face with other time periods that I've lived through as an investor. Every bear market, first of all, has a reason. Every single time, if we have the exact same problem, we know, already know that we have the answer for it or the antidote, and it, people don't get as scared. Every bear market has to have a new problem we face. So each bear market problem is, is new and unprecedented in some way. 2000 tech crash. So I think back to the 2000 tech crash. Today, again, markets have been bad, but it certainly doesn't feel like the broad market excess of, of 2000. If you go back into the late 1990s, there were massive amounts of money that were flowing into thousands and thousands of companies that far outstripped the potential economic benefit of those companies. And that led to this massive overinflated bubble of a bunch of empty promises. Then we get into the late 1990s and all that money allowed companies, at least for a shorter period of time, to flourish and jobs proliferated only to vanish as soon as markets realized that, that a lot of those companies would never be able to support those valuations. And money just hit the exits just very, very quickly. And companies and jobs, just companies disappeared, jobs disappeared on, on a massive scale. And that led the NASDAQ to crash in the 75 to 80% range. We're talking about massive, massive loss. The SP 500 during that period of time down about 45%. Is this market overvalued like 1999 or 1999 style? Not quite. Actually, not really. It's a very, very different picture from an overvaluation standpoint. The price to earnings ratio or P multiple back in 1999 was in the high 20s, close to 30. 30 times earnings the market was trading. Today, in 2022, that number is around 16, 16 and a half. So it's not quite half, but it's almost almost 50% less overvalued or less expensive than what we saw in 1999. Are there pockets in this world that we've seen crash very quickly like 1999? Sure. The cryptocurrency market reminds me, today reminds me a lot of the NASDAQ in 2000. So perhaps that's one area that is very much like what happened in 2000, NASDAQ crashed 75, 80%. Well, so has already the $3 trillion crypto market. $3 trillion to under a trillion, that's a 65% decline for the entire market scheme. Not just talking about Bitcoin and Ethereum, I'm talking about all the cryptocurrencies collectively have gone from over $3 trillion to under $1 trillion. That's a massive loss, and it looks a lot like the year 2000. How about the 2007 financial crisis? Now, that was arguably much worse than what we're seeing today. Trillions of dollars of loans supporting an oversupply of housing 
led to all these underwater mortgages all over the United States. Borrowers didn't have have to have good credit. Borrowers back then didn't even have to have jobs to borrow $200,000, to buy a house. So because it was such a loose lending market, it overinflated the price of housing. And when the music stopped there, it was a, a shocking decline because it wasn't just the stock market, it was the entire housing market as well. Today, is there excess in the financial system with, with lending and borrowing? Maybe to some extent, but think about how difficult it is to get a mortgage. Think about the, if you've gotten a mortgage or done a refinancing, it's a whole new world in housing and mortgage and lending than it was prior to the financial crisis because of the financial crisis. Regulations tighten, banks get really nervous and scared. So the lending market has, is much more sound today than it was back before what led to the financial crisis in 2005, six, and seven. Really, the lending of 04, 05, 06 led to the financial crisis of 2007, 2008. Let's take a look at how are Americans doing today? Well, Americans are in relatively good economic shape. If you take a look at household debt service payments as a percentage of disposable personal income, you go to FRED, which is the Federal Reserve Economic Data, you'll see that over the course of, go, go all, the, all the way back to 1980, typically you see a household spending anywhere from 10 to 13% of their income on debt service, 10 to 13% of their income on average over the course of the last, call it 40 years. But if you look at where we are today, we're in the eight to 9% range. So 9% on average, the American households spending to pay down debt, debt service. Household debt service is really low and, and has some room to rise just to get back to normal. So the American consumer is in pretty good shape relative, which makes sense. The peak of household debt service was right before the, the great financial crisis when lending was easy, didn't have to have a job or a lot of income, could borrow a bunch of money. It was in the 13, 14% range. Today, nine. Very different economic picture for U.S. households. So are things as bad as 2007? Are things as bad as the year 2000? How about 2020? How about the pandemic? Let's compare it to then. I will tell you that that was perhaps the scariest period of time economically that I can remember because we were just shutting down the economy. And we'd never done that before in US in modern US history where we essentially had stay at home orders all across the United States restaurants closed everything closed travel essentially stopped down 90% and it wasn't just the United States it was the world and we had no idea how long that would last so we go into these economic shutdowns final four the college basketball in march goes down then the nba stops i remember college sports stopped the world just stopped as we all know very very well how do you survive as a hotel? How do you survive as an airline? How do you survive as a cruise industry? How do you survive as a restaurant? The, the hundreds of thousands of restaurants and livelihoods of restaurant owners all across the United States when there was no commerce and there was no commerce for weeks and then months and then the reopening was very, very slow. Imagine how scary that period of time was economically. Just... What was it going to do to earnings? When were we going to reopen? How long was this going to go on? And here we are in the summer of 2022. And even though most Americans have either been vaccinated or had COVID, we are certainly in a much better phase of what was a pandemic now has really moved in more of an endemic. But here we are three, almost three years into this. That was a really scary period of time. But as soon as the market realized that the world wasn't going to stay closed forever, it rallied and it did so violently, which again, part of the data that goes into having to make sure we are invested to catch the beginning of any of these recoveries. If we don't, we are very much left behind. So is today, 2022, consumer sentiment low, bear market for stocks, Fed raising rates, is today is bad? as 2000, 2007, 2020. In my opinion, no. Today's problems are different. It's not a bubble for mortgages. It's not a global pandemic shutdown. The problem today is it's an interesting challenge because the economy is almost too strong 
It's a very different problem than what we faced over the last three, those three periods of time, which I'd say those were the worst, 2000, 2007, 2020. There's too much money in the system. And interest rates were too low for too long. The Fed, though, now bringing interest rates back to a more normal level, 2%, which we've already gone through. Uh, now, federal funds is still sub 2%, but the bond market itself, a, a one-year treasury bond is already paying over 3%. So the bond market has raised rates because of what the Fed is going has done and is going to do. But we're going to be in the 2 3 4% range, and guess what? We're going to be okay. We've lived 100 years of economic history with interest rates in the 2 3 4 5% range. Most of economic history, we didn't have zero interest rates. The vast majority of economic history in the United States, we've lived and done quite well with rates at 3 and 4 and 5%. And we can certainly do it again. And we can certainly function and survive in what I would consider just a more normal interest rate environment. So do, do I like going through these bear markets? No, I don't like them. I do feel like they they present real opportunity. I do feel like they present investors with real opportunity to buy stocks at lower levels. Now you may say, Wes, well, most of my money's already invested. And if you're a retiree, that is arguably or likely true. But if you're in your 30s, 40s, 50s, and you're saving, you're able, you, now you're buying stocks if you continue to invest at much lower levels. So again, I don't love going through these bear markets, but they do present real opportunity. Do I like the economy slowing down? Why inflation? Is it 8%? No. Clearly, Americans don't either because consumer sentiment is so low. But we've lived through much worse than the Fed taking interest rates back to a normal level. We've lived through what I would consider much scarier and much less solvable problems and live to fight another day. Now, will there be a time when inflation starts to come back down to earth? Absolutely. Markets will like that. Will markets have some sense of relief after the midterm elections in November? Historically, the answer is yes. More certainty around what the makeup in Washington looks like. Will there be a time when the Fed can pause rate hikes and we find some equilibrium again? Absolutely. And we're going to look back at 1994 when the Fed raised rates seven, essentially seven straight times in a very significant way. And we'll look at what the market did back then. Will we get some resolution with Russia, Ukraine? We don't know when that's going to happen. Could drag on for many years or we could get some resolution. And perhaps that doesn't last forever as well, God willing. And will there be a time when the market and market sentiment starts to brighten a little bit? Is it going to be tomorrow or this week? Is it going to be here in the summer? Maybe, but maybe not. Maybe it's sometime later in the year. Maybe it's sometime next year, but it is entirely possible. But there will be a time, and I guess unless the world totally ends, there will be a time when market sentiment gets better. And remember, if we look back at the anatomy of bear markets and then the anatomy of recoveries, we got to be there when that recovery starts. Remember, we have to be there invested as investors when things turn. That's, remember, 30 for 30. 30% of the market's recovery happens in just 30 days. 30 days is a very short window relative to the year and a half to two years it typically, take, typically takes for markets to recover. So let's, just, let's not miss that very, very beginning piece of the equation. We're going to take a look back at 1994 right now when the Fed raised rates. And then after that, we're going to talk about what's been working. Value versus growth. What are some of these indices? What are the sectors that have been holding up in a, in a rough 2022. We'll do that as soon as we take a look back at 1994. So the last time the Fed went on a similar rate hike trajectory, if you will, was what was dubbed back in 1994 a stealth bear market because markets did this roller coaster effect up and down and up and down and never really went anywhere for the better part of a year, 1994 into early 1995. And it was because the Fed was raising rates. The federal funds rate headed in 1994 was right at 3%. And it was at 3% for a while. Then February of 1994, the Fed started to hike. 
up a quarter of a percent in Feb, up a quarter percent in March, up a quarter percent in April. This is all 1994. And then they had to get even more aggressive. And the Federal Reserve hiked rates by a full half a percent in 1994, uh, May. Then in August, same thing, another half a percent. Then they had to get even more aggressive and they raised again by three quarters of a percent in November 1994 and then finished off that rate hiking cycle by another full half a percent in February of 1995. Wait a minute, we've seen the Fed do this over the course of economic history and we lived to fight another day. Remember how strong the markets were from 95 to 1999? And that was all in an interest rate environment that went essentially from 3% headed into 1994 after seven rate hikes, we were, or 300 basis points, a full 3%. We were at a 6% federal funds rate in early 1995. So we've been through this. Now, what did the market do, though? If you go back and look at January of 94 through Feb of 1995, it's about 292 trading days. The S&P 500 traded approximately in a 10% range, kind of with a ceiling of around 483 every time it would hit that level, it would come back down. And then to some extent, a lower bound or almost a floor of 436. What does that mean on a percentage basis? Well, markets went down when the Fed started to hike by 10%, then start climb back six in the summer, then dropped five, then gained nine, then dropped six, and just went back and forth and back and forth and really went nowhere until that final rate hike was put in and the market looked up and said, oh, that's probably enough. That's probably enough. So the question I think we face our, today is when is that moment when the market realizes the Fed can stop hiking rates? We don't know. But it's probably going to look something like, oh, the latest CPI report was only at 7%, not 8.5. Wait a minute. The latest CPI report was 65 not 8. We start getting economic reports like that the Federal Reserve will say, oh, okay, what we've been doing is starting to work. It's starting to cool down prices. And then we start to get light at the end of the tunnel on when they can stop the rate hiking cycle. Just like what happened in 94, markets started to really take off in 1995 when the Fed was done. And I think we're going to be in that period of purgatory for markets. Markets probably won't do great until there's some sort of light at the end of the tunnel on inflation coming down and the Fed being able to pause. Now let's talk about what's been working. So how do you survive these bear markets? What's been working in 2020? And if I go back to just kind of reset the table, I've been an investor now for 20, close to 25 years. In I started in 1997 as an intern at one of the big Wall Street companies. And now for the last 15 plus years or so, been a partner with a wealth management firm, Capital Investment Advisors, based out of Atlanta. And our job is to help families find happiness in retirement. That is our mission. That is our mission. And our job is to help people create streams of income and protect purchasing power through investing. How do we help people grow their income so that that can outpace inflation once you stop working and you kind of have everything you're going to save? How do you put that money to work? Well, from a Wall Street perspective or just an investor perspective, there's almost an endless amount of ways you can approach investing. You can do global macro, small cap, hedged investing. But the bigger, really, let's call it the two biggest categories, if you look at the U.S. stock market, they would be growth and value. And those are two styles of investing. And it's not necessarily, and I'm not here to say one style is better than the other, and I'm not here to say, tell you exactly how to invest. What I wanted to cover today is how we've invested over many years at our firm and what, can, what really gives me comfort over time, particularly when we go through these really difficult periods of time. And that's a focus on more value, more dividend-oriented, more income-oriented investing. So let's start with these two really important broad categories. So as far as investing styles are concerned, these are the two titans, growth and value. 
Let's start with value investing. Again, value investing typically is going to involve more dividend-paying type companies. It's a style that focuses on companies that could be trading at a price below their intrinsic value or their, their book value. These are typically companies that produce goods or services that are less likely to swing wildly from a demand perspective. So you typically get more predictable cash flow. And when you get more predictable cash flow for a more mature company, it's easier for the company to pay out a steady level of income or a dividend to investors. As an example, think about companies in the consumer staples sector. These are companies that sell products we use every day. Think food and beverages. You don't get wild swings in soda. You get small incremental peaks and valleys, but you don't see a 200% surge in people buying soda. Soda sales down 80% this month. These are really typically very steady sectors of the economy. Household goods, hygiene products. Think toothpaste. Pretty steady demand curve. So demand for the, for the products made by these more value-oriented companies, what we would call in economics, inelastic. Think of a rubber band that doesn't move all that much in either direction. Think of these also as the must-haves when it comes from a product perspective. Not a lot of change in demand, even when prices may fluctuate. So if you're a value investor... Those are typically the kind of companies you're looking for because you're looking for a more consistent investment return has the potential to pay out a steady dividend. And to some extent, you're willing to take a company that has a slower growth trajectory. Maybe a little slower, but a little steadier. Growth investing, so let's go to Titan number two. Growth investing, or if you're a growth investor, you're looking for companies with the highest possible sales growth and highest long, long, long-term potential, regardless of where earnings are today. So these are companies that have products or services that may not generate any revenue. They may not have certainly not any profit, but the future earning potential are high. Think of a brand new electric vehicle company that is going to cost a couple billion dollars just to get started before they make any sort of revenue or profit whatsoever. could take years, but they could grow at 100% a year for year over year over year for a while. So lots of potential. These could be companies with great technology, great ideas for brand new products. They could have products that just, they may not even have any sales just yet. Or they may only even just have a prototype. They may still be in a phase of just building out what they're eventually going to sell. So growth companies tend to have a higher investment return potential but they're more likely to be inconsistent with their overall returns. Think higher peaks and valleys. One of my favorite charts in market history is to look at the four big regimes from 1960 until today when it comes to inflation and how growth did versus value. I think of this in kind of these four periods. Period one and three, we had kind of normal CPI or normal inflation. That was 1960 to 1972, CPI averaged 2.9%. Pretty normal. And growth and value did about the same. Value was up around 12 per year, 12% on average. Growth up around 9% on average. Same thing if you look at 1983 to 2008, another really, quote, normal period of inflation. CPI averaged 3.2% during that whole period of time, 83 to 2008. Value averaged about 9.5%. Growth averaged about 8.5%. Pretty similar. But if we look at the two kind of abnormal periods of inflation, one really high and one really low, that would be 1973 to 1982. We all remember inflation being through the roof. Average, CPI averaged 9% a year for almost a decade. Growth companies didn't do all that well during that period of time when we had really high inflation. Growth companies averaged only 2% a year. Value companies averaged almost 11. But the inverse was true when we get to abnormal period but almost the inverse was true when we get to the next abnormal period. And this was abnormally low inflation, 2009 to 2021. CPI averaged only 1.6% for that whole over a decade period of time. Growth investing averaged almost 18.5% per year. Value only about 12. So growth was really favored in an ultra low period of inflation. 
you can probably think where I'm headed here. We're in a new phase. We're now in above average inflation and we'll probably be above average inflation for a while now, which if you go back over the course of history, tends to favor these more dividend oriented, value oriented companies. And that is really already played out in 2022. If I look towards the end of June, again, S&P 500 is still in bear market territory. The Russell 1000 value index versus the Russell 1000 growth index, what does it look like? As you can maybe imagine, the Russell 1000 growth index down right around the 26% range, while the Russell 1000 value index down less than half of that, down around 12%. Again, value holding up very, very well in a really, really rough market. Now, what's in these indexes, indices? Let's take a look at the iShares Russell 1000 growth ETF, symbol IWF. Remember, any sort of media we do, I'm not recommending you go buy or sell any of these. These are just examples to understand what's inside. What's inside? What's the engine inside of these indices or these ETFs? And IWF is an ETF full of stocks that tracks the Russell 1000 Growth Index. Now, these are subject to change this summer, and there's, there's some relatively interesting changes happening. But here's where we stand today as of close to the end of June. What's the growth index look like? It's 45% information technology. And it's 17% consumer discretionary, which is the opposite of consumer staples. And then the third biggest category, communication, will also have technology companies as well. So 75% of the Russell 1000 growth index is in highly economically sensitive areas, tech, consumer discretionary, and communication. The biggest holdings, Apple, Amazon, Tesla, Google, NVIDIA, Facebook, or Meta. We're talking heavy, heavy tech. That's Russell 1000 growth. Now let's look at the counterpart, the Russell 1000 value ETF. Now the, the ETF that tracks this index is IWD. And these are large and mid-cap US companies that exhibit, quote, value characteristics. What are those sectors? Number one sector, financials. Number two sector, healthcare. Number three sector, industrials. And only 9% tech or information technology. 6% utilities. So a totally different ballgame from a sector perspective. What are the big holdings in the value index? Berkshire Hathaway. It's essentially a big financial services conglomerate with lots of insurance companies. Johnson & Johnson, United Healthcare. Number four, ExxonMobil, Energy, J.P. Morgan, the quintessential consumer staple company, Procter & Gamble, Chevron, Pfizer, Bank of America. Totally different composition, totally different style of company. One more quick ETF example. The iShares Select Dividend ETF. This is an ETF that has companies inside that have paid dividends at least for five years in a row. Symbol on this is DVY. And again, I'm not saying run out and buy this or sell this. Just an example, because DVY, towards the end of June, whole world market down, it's only down 3.5%. Talk about holding up well. Well, top sectors, utilities, number one sector, financials, consumer staples, energy. Totally different ballgame than a growth-oriented ETF. And it's held up extraordinarily well. Now, I could go and do... 10 different examples of different value-oriented dividend-paying ETFs. We're not going to go through that whole list. But this year, 2022, is perhaps one of the best examples of what's supposed to hold up in a high inflationary environment, value and dividend-oriented companies, and that's working. Plus, the yield on these companies are what gets paid out to investors in an ETF like DVY, what I just mentioned still yields over 3%, meaning that that's the dividend amount you get regardless of what happens to the price of that ETF. So if you compare the two titans of investing, growth versus value, the Russell 1000 growth versus the Russell 1000 value, you get a lot more yield in value companies. In fact, value, and I'm comparing Russell 1000 value to growth, value has more than double the yield or current income of growth. 
what we're paying for these companies, PE ratio is very, very different. PE for value is less than 13 and a half, 40% lower than growth's PE. And value's PE is 16% less than its 10-year average. So it's even cheap relative to itself historically. Growth is still above its 10-year average. So what's expensive versus not so expensive? From the way I see it, value is still way less expensive than growth, both currently and on a historical basis. So here's the bottom line. When we get into choppy waters like we are today, areas with the most excess get punished the most. So growth, NASDAQ, cryptocurrency. Arguably, that's where much of the excess has been over the last several years. And then value or dividend-oriented companies, really that area has had just much less excess. Hence, it's not surprising that the Russell 1000 value is down about half of what the growth index is in 2022. So how do you get defensive? Well, you could own bonds. Interest rates have gone up. One-year treasury bonds actually pay a yield today where they didn't six months ago. The one-year treasury was virtually zero for many years. Today, it's over 3%. So there's at least a little bit of yield in bonds. It's a place to hide. You could not own stocks, get out of the market. Or you could own more defensive companies, value more dividend-oriented stocks as a way to get through this not-so-pleasant time. It's not supposed to, investing's not supposed to be easy or everybody would make money with stocks. And we know that most people don't because they only want to invest when it feels good or it's easy. And to make investing work for you, you've got to endure the good times and the bad or the rough times. And we're in one of those rough times now. But I also don't want you to get shaken. Remember how quickly markets turn higher when they do decide to turn. I'm most comfortable owning companies that pay out dividends. Owning companies that aren't overly expensive, which is how I think I both emotionally and analytically, those are the two sides of investing, how we feel versus the numbers. So both emotionally and analytically, that's how I make it through tough times, owning companies that aren't overly expensive that pay out dividends. I think you can do the same. I know it's a rough year. I want you to hang in there. We're all in this together. It's easy to find the Retire Sooner team. If you go to wesmoss.com, that's just W-E-S, MOSS.com. And on westmoss.com, there's a contact button in the upper right-hand corner, and those emails come straight to me and the Retire Sooner team. Have a wonderful rest of your day. Hey, y'all. This is Mallory with the Retire Sooner team. Please be sure to rate and subscribe to this podcast and share it with a friend. If you have any questions, you can find us at westmoss.com. That's W-E-S-M-O-S-S.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and YouTube. You'll find us under the handle Retire Sooner Podcast. And now for our show's disclosure. This is provided as a resource for informational purposes and is not to be viewed as investment advice or recommendations. This information is being presented without consideration of the investment objectives, risk tolerance, or financial circumstances of any specific investor and might not be suitable for all investors. The mention of any company is provided to you for informational purposes and as an example only and is not to be considered investment advice or recommendation or an endorsement of any particular company. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. There is no guarantee offered that investment return, yield, or performance will be achieved. The information provided is strictly an opinion and for informational purposes only, and it is not known whether the strategies will be successful. There are many aspects and criteria that must be examined and considered before investing. This information is not intended to and should not form a primary basis for any investment decision that you may make. Always consult your own legal, tax, or investment advisor before making any investment, tax, estate, or financial plan considerations or decisions. Investment decisions should not be made solely based on information contained herein.